0: so great to be here with all of you. Um, Actually, uh, I would actually ask you guys to stand up. (laughs) We're going to get right into God's Word. And um, Rod has often pointed this moment to being at a football game where the running back or the receiver gets the ball breaks away from the tackler, and everybody stands up in anticipation of what's about to happen, a touchdown. Not everybody is a sports lover, I recognize, so I was trying to think of another way to get into your world, and I think we can all uh, relate to when someone of high standing or high respect, whether it's an elder or it's someone who is in public office walks in, I don't know about you, but there's this natural tendency where you want to stand up to greet them, to welcome them, and, and how much more when the Word of God comes in this place would we want to stand up and give the Word of God its due reverence, its due fear, but it's also its due awe. So uh, we are in Luke chapter 20. We're going to be going from verse 1 all the way down to verse 19, and done a little something here for this morning to share God's Word with you in a way that might be a little bit different than usual, Um, spending the last month or so just taking in this text and getting it in my heart. Um, If you want to follow along in your Bibles, you can. If you want to close your Bibles, you can follow along and just simply receive the word as I share it with you now. Luke chapter 20, verses 1 through 19. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, then he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man... All the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What should I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And when they threw him out of the vineyard, they killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for giving us your word. Everything that we prayed in this last song, we ask that you would hear and you would respond. Take your word, plant it deep within us. Renew our minds this morning by your word And Father, I pray that it wouldn't just be so we can show people how much we know about the Bible, but God, it would be so that we can be transformed by your word, being a people who are a living temple to the living God for your glory and for the good of the nations like Lebanon, for the good of the nations like Syria, for the good of cities like Grand Rapids. Father, I'm a man of unclean lips, in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and I ask that you would touch me now and give me the grace so that the words of my mouth, but also the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, it would be glorifying to you, and it would be good for my family who's here this morning. Lord, hear our prayer in Jesus' name, amen. I see it. Take a little swig of water. That was a lot of talking with very little breaths. (laughs) Almost every Sunday, I have the privilege and the joy of teaching kids at crossroads and preaching the gospel, and um, they often come up to me, and they ask me, some of the funniest, some of the cutest, and some of the most honest questions I've ever heard. Um, But thankfully, none of them has ever come up to me and asked me the question that the chief priests and the scribes and the elders come up and ask Jesus. And honestly, I think if one of them ever did, their number would be going up on the screen immediately for mom and dad to come (laughs) and teach them a little lesson on respect. (laughs) And uh, you see, that's what's going on at the heart of the religious leader's question. They didn't respect Jesus' authority. In fact, they rejected his authority because they did not believe that he was and he is the Son of God. And so, as we're going to step into the text this morning, um, I believe it's going to answer for us at least three questions. One, why was the authority of Jesus challenged? Two, how, if at all, did Jesus defend his authority? And three, what does the authority of Jesus mean for our lives? So, we step out of the text. My hope is that we will see that these three questions boil down to this one answer. Because Jesus is the Son of God, we must not reject his authority over our lives. Because Jesus is the Son of God, we must not reject his authority over our lives. And if you hear for the first time, First of all, I just want to say welcome and thank you for joining us this morning. It's a great time to be here at Crossroads because uh, we're going through a book in the Bible known as the Gospel according to Luke. And so to get things started, I just want to say a quick word about Luke and about his Gospel so that we can all, whether you're here for the first time or you've been coming since the beginning, we can all feel like we're on the same page here. So Uh, Let me just say something really quick about Luke and his gospel. Luke was an early follower of Jesus whose day job was a physician. But his hobby, if you can even call it that, was doing history. He also was a travel buddy to one of the most, if not the most, influential Christian of the first century. The Apostle Paul. As he traveled around with Paul, he met all sorts of people who knew Jesus firsthand. They saw what he did, and they heard what he taught. So, with with Luke's physician's eye for detail, and with his historian's interest in the who's, the what's, the when's, the where's, the why's of life, Luke wrote this historical narrative about Jesus. And in his opening prologues to both his gospel and then its sequel, the book of Acts, Luke tells us that he used these eyewitness accounts to compile for us a narrative of all that Jesus began to do and teach His purpose in doing so was no mystery. In fact, he tells us in Luke chapter 1, verse 4, that it was so that you and I might not just have faith, but certainty. Certainty concerning the things we have been taught. Now maybe you're here today because a friend or a family member dragged you in Maybe you're here today because you're feeling guilty about some poor life decisions you made last night. Or maybe you're here today because you've heard one person's opinion about Jesus and you've heard another person's opinion about Jesus, but now you just want to get the facts and try and get some certainty about them yourself. Maybe you're here today because this is what you do on Sunday. You're here every Sunday. No matter who you are or why you are here The Gospel of Luke and its overarching message applies to you. That Jesus is the Savior, not just of the Jews, but of all people. And that is great news. No matter who you are or why you are here. Jesus is the Savior of all peoples. We're at the point in Luke's gospel where Jesus' mission is about to be fulfilled. He's entered Jerusalem and he knows that it is here where he will be killed. He knows that it is here where he will be raised from the dead. He knows that it is here where he will send out his followers into all the earth to be his witnesses. But Jesus also knows. That in order for things to get started, he needs to do some house cleaning. And that's where we find ourselves today. We find ourselves with Jesus as he's just cleansed the temple and quoted some piercing texts of scripture at the chief priests right to their face. These guys, the chief priests uh, with their friends, the religious scribes and elders. um, After they saw Jesus do what he did in the temple and after they heard him say what what he said to them, to their face. These good old boys are thinking to themselves one version or another of who in the, does this guy think he is? And that is no exaggeration. You'll see it once we get into the text. He doesn't make them very happy. We'll put it that way. (laughs) And that's where our story picks up. So um, do we feel like we're kind of all on the same page? Feeling like we kind of get a grasp of where we're at in the gospel? Luke, his gospel? Hope so. Um, That said, let's step into the text. Let's start considering these questions um, that I mentioned earlier. Starting with the first one. Why was the authority of Jesus challenged? If you have your Bibles open, look with me to Luke chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. Here we will see at least how he's challenged, and then we will see why Jesus' authority was challenged. So Luke chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority. Here we see the temple leaders come up to Jesus and challenge his authority. They do so not so much by Asking, but by demanding, by demanding that Jesus tell them by what authority he did these things. Now, what were the temple leaders referring to when they asked Jesus to tell them by what authority he did these things? Either you were paying attention earlier on and I was hinting at it, or we can just go ahead and look at its immediate context to get an idea of what they were referring to when they said these things. So look over in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19 verses 45 and 46. Here we will see what exactly they were referring to when they challenged Jesus' authority and told him, tell us by what authority you do these things. Luke chapter 19 verses 45 and 46 read, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Temple leaders are referring not just to what Jesus did, but also to what Jesus said. Tell us by what authority you cleansed the temple and said the things you said to us. Who do you think you are? And notice with me that Jesus entered the temple and began to do what? He began to drive out forcefully those. Sold in the temple. Why did he do that? Anybody know what Jewish holiday the people were celebrating? I heard some whispers. What? Passover, yes. Passover. They were celebrating the Passover, and part of celebrating it was that Jewish people from all over the world would come to Jerusalem. They would then bring with them an unblemished lamb and go to the chief priests at the temple. One by one, the priests would examine their lamb that they brought from all over the place. And if it passed, they would go on and slaughter their lamb at the altar of the temple. This was to remember how God passed over the people of Israel and delivered them from slavery in Egypt. But then we get into Jesus' day, and when people brought their unblemished lambs to the chief priests, listen to this, they would intentionally reject their lambs. They knew that the people would have no other choice but to buy the lambs that they sold in the temple at a stadium price. And if you've bought a hot dog at a football game before, you know what I'm talking about. It's like you're buying a filet mignon. (laughs) Jesus saw right through their scam. And that's why he began to forcefully drive out those who sold. As a result, Jesus comes in and he closes up shop. You know what that means for the chief priests and the scribes? They're not getting a payday today. Jesus crashes the economy of the chief priests for that one day. Need you to hear me out before I say this, but work with me here. This could be compared to when protesters of the Black Lives Matter movement clogged up the streets of Chicago and kept people from Entering stores on the Magnificent Mile. Did anybody hear about that? It was about a month ago or so, yeah. Yeah. It was a radical measure taken to make a radical point that we all needed to hear and see. Yes, all lives matter, but let's not forget that black lives are a part of that. whether you agree with their actions or not, they got a lot of people, regardless of their race, to show their true colors. Store clerks, shoppers alike, they were so quick to not listen and so quick to get angry and to speak what they really thought. they began to rail protesters just like the chief priests. Rather than being quick to listen, slow to speak, and get angry, they just skipped that and began to rail Jesus with their demand. Tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority. In the case of The protesters, they were blocking the shoppers' access to worship in the broken cistern temples of consumerism. In the case of Jesus, he was blocking the chief priests' access into what they made the temple. A self-exalting temple of greed. But it's not just what Jesus did that caused the temple leaders to challenge Jesus' authority. It's also what he said notice with me here <clears throat> in verse 46 Jesus says to them it is written that whose house my house shall be called a house of prayer but you have made it a what den of robbers could there be anything more opposite house of prayer den of robbers When Jesus calls the temple, my house, this is a step up, a big step up from what he calls the temple earlier on in Luke's gospel. In Luke chapter 2, verse 49, Jesus is about 12 years old and he is, and his family, they go up to the temple to celebrate the Passover, but he doesn't call the temple his house. He called it my father's house. Fast forward to our text here, and now Jesus is a man, and he makes himself equal with God. He makes himself equal with God. My house shall be a house of prayer. And here now is a situation where the house of prayer is a den or literally a hideout for robbers and the only solution is judgment on the temple leadership and destruction on the temple building itself. Both were useless now. Both had fulfilled their purposes. It was now time for God to do something new. You might Notice that some of your Bibles have footnotes at the bottom. Uh, They might reference two scripture texts. One being Isaiah 56 verse 7. The other one being Jeremiah 7 verse 11. Uh, When Jesus says, my house shall be a house of prayer, he's quoting Isaiah. When Jesus says, but you have made it a den of robbers, he's quoting Jeremiah. By combining both of these texts... And taking into consideration their surrounding contexts, Jesus was saying that one era was ending and another was starting. The temple would no longer be a building where non-Jews could only get so close to come and worship in the presence of God. The temple would now be a people from every nation, every tribe, every culture, every language. And they would be able to draw near to God and worship and pray to him, not in a building, but in spirit and in truth. The old was going away and the new was coming, and eventually Jesus would fulfill his mission in Jerusalem. And this new era would begin. That's why Paul told the Corinthian Christians, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells within you? And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the same question applies to you and me and how we live our lives. Do you Do I know that you, that we are the temple of God? Do we know that God's spirit dwells within us? The point was one and the same with Jesus. The temple, the church is not a building, but a people. And the temple leaders saw this As Jesus cleansed the temple. And they heard this as Jesus quoted the prophets to their face. And this is why they challenged Jesus' authority. That said, let's go ahead and move on to the next question that we'll find in the text. How, if at all, did Jesus defend his authority? Coming back into Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 3, we see how, if at all, Jesus defended his authority. Look with me here in Luke 20, verses 3, all the way down to verse 8. He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, then he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, All the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. From the looks of this conversation, would you say that Jesus defended his authority? Temple leaders demanded that Jesus tell them by what authority he did the things we just considered. But Jesus, he answered by asking them a question about the baptism of John. How does that make sense? It seems like he might be dodging. But is he? Um, I don't want to assume that all of us know about John and about his baptism. So I'll just say a couple things really quick to make sure we're on the same page with John, too. Um, Back in Luke chapter 1, the gospel opens up with this story about John's birth being foretold. There, an angel of the Lord appeared to a righteous temple priest named Zechariah. And Zechariah and his wife Hannah, they were barren. They had no children and they were starting to get up there in age and, of course, this doesn't phase God because God does things like this and he sends the angel to Zechariah as he's on priest duty in the temple and the angel tells him that he and his wife are going to be having a son and the angel tells Zechariah these astonishing words. Listen up to this. And you will have joy, and gladness, and many, that includes you and me, will rejoice at his birth. Here's why. For he will be great before the Lord, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him, that is, Jesus, in the spirit and power of Elijah for this purpose to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just for this goal, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So that's one little piece of evidence to make us be thinking about Jesus' question. Is the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Listen to this other piece here. As we continue reading Luke's gospel in chapter 3, we find John as a grown man. And his ministry is well underway. Among other things, Luke writes for us, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. There's a second piece of evidence to help us start thinking about Jesus' question. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man Look at just one more piece. In Luke 7, verse 27, Jesus himself endorses John. He says, This is he of whom it is written in Scripture Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. From all these texts, if Jesus asked you, Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? What would your answer be? Heaven. Heaven. It's a no-brainer. He's just giving him a softball. (laughs) The baptism of John was from heaven, yet the temple leaders could not bring themselves to say anything one way or another. Whether they said it was from heaven or from man, their answer would have implications and consequences. The same goes for you and me too. We can all agree that the texts I just shared provide explicitly abundant evidence to convince us, at least in our minds, that the baptism of John was from heaven. But to say that we are convinced with the people in the text, that John is a prophet and that his baptism was from heaven implies something of God has happened in our heart. Have we ever considered that about John? Of course we think about the apostles. Of course we think about the prophets of the Old Testament. Of course we think about that for Jesus. But have we ever considered John and his radical message of repentance to be prepared for the coming of the Lord. It takes an act of God, not just in our minds, but in our hearts for us to get convinced like that. It implies that we have believed not in a man, but in God. As a result, our faith in God is what produces a willingness to take stands and put our lives on the line day in, day out, let the chips fall where they may. But the temple leaders were not willing to go there. And as a result, neither was Jesus. Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And if the text stopped right here, then it might seem that Jesus didn't defend his authority. I think we could say, quite frankly, he's not interested in proving himself to anyone who's not willing to seek him with all their heart. The leaders certainly were not interested in that. Jesus wasn't going to coerce himself on them. Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. But as we continue reading in the text, we will see that maybe he does defend his authority. And maybe we can make meaning out of it for our lives. So let's continue reading here. Look with me in Luke 20, verse 9. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. Now if we pause right there, (laughs) Excuse me. Wouldn't you agree that the story starts out pretty nice? Sounds like lyrics to a country song or something. (laughs) A man planted a vineyard, let it out to tenants, went into another country for a long while. But for Jesus' audience, this story starts off and continues with echoes of lyrics to a song that was all too familiar. Let's keep reading. Verse 10. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send. Not another servant. I will send my beloved son. As Jesus continues his story here, his audience knows exactly what he's referring to. In Isaiah chapter 5 The Lord inspired the prophet to write a song for his beloved, and that also sounds nice. All the wives are probably thinking, I want my husband to write a song for me too. Maybe that was a joke fail right there. Maybe they don't. (laughs) But listen to how the song starts off. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it, cleared it of stones, and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. And all the gardeners helped me out with this. Is it he hoed out or is it hewed? Okay. Hoed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes. But it yielded wild grapes. Anybody ever seen what wild grapes look like? Ugh, they're little, they're bitter. They're wild grapes. I mean, they they're, they're wild in their nature. And in this song, doesn't it sound like doesn't sound like it's going to be a happily ever after type of love song here? Does it? No. The vineyard had everything in place for it to be fail-proof. It should have been the most fruitful vineyard in all the land. But instead, it yields bitter, puny, wild grapes. And because of this, the song continues with the one who planted the vineyard, Yahweh, declaring that he is going to destroy the vineyard. And after all this symbolic language, The song ends and we find out explicitly what it means. The vineyard is Israel and the men of Judah, the temple leaders. And here's Jesus after this confrontation with the temple leaders, beginning to tell the people this parable in their hearing. A man planted a vineyard. Huh, that sounds familiar. Let it out to tenants. Went to another country for a long while. They know exactly where Jesus is going with this. Isaiah writes that the Lord looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness or generosity, But behold, an outcry. This song is what's echoing in the minds of Jesus' audience as he began and continued to tell them this parable. Let's see how he continues, starting in verse 14. But when the tenants saw him, that is, the beloved son of the owner of the vineyard, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let's kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And when they threw him out of the vineyard, they killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to those tenants? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Let's pause there for a moment. What we see here in this parable is yes, a commentary on Isaiah chapter 5. But even more than that, it's a story of God's stunning grace and mercy toward Israel and its leaders. Throughout its history, God sent prophet after prophet to the people of Israel and its leaders to call them out of sin and into a life of justice and generosity with him. Over and over again, Israel and its leaders would only respond with more unjust bloodshed and more agonizing oppression. They would revile the prophets and persecute them and say all sorts of false charges against them to Israel's king. Some of them they even killed. This, in and of itself, should have been enough to make God's wrath explode on Israel and its leaders. But then Jesus' parable reaches this climax in the plot. And the owner of the vineyard doesn't send wrath, he sends his beloved son just as vulnerable, just as unarmed just to get some of the fruit of the vineyard. Here we see that Jesus does identify himself and defend his authority. By telling the people this parable in the hearing of the temple leaders, Jesus lets it be known that he is the son of God. He is the beloved in the song of the vineyard. And he is the beloved son of the owner of the vineyard. Jesus, with his father, owns the temple. That's why he can enter it and forcefully drive out those who sold. That's why he can pierce the temple leaders with the indicting words of the prophets. My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a, house, a den of robbers. Who does Jesus think he is coming in and acting like he owns this place? He does own this place, he is the son of the owner. We've seen why Jesus' authority was challenged. And here we've seen also how Jesus defended his authority. All that's left for us to ask is this question. What does the authority of Jesus mean for our lives? Let's continue reading here, midway through verse 16. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the what? Cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And here's their response. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. Here's why. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But then listen to this statement. <laughs> but they feared the people. As we can see, Jesus' parable sparked a heated and eventually deadly response. The people and the temple leaders could not believe that the owner of the vineyard, God, would actually come And destroy those tenants. The temple leaders. And give the vineyard. That is. The leadership of the true temple. To others. They didn't believe it. Impossible. But you know what this showed? This showed how lost they were from God. In their sins. It also showed how necessary it was for the climax of Jesus' parable to become the climax of their lives. They needed the owner of the vineyard to send his beloved son. They needed the beloved son of the owner to die at the hands of the wicked tenants. And so do we. Do we believe this? Do we believe that we are so lost from God in our sins that the only solution is the death of His Son? In Jesus' death, He was the stone that the builders rejected. But in Jesus' resurrection, he became the cornerstone. He became the cornerstone from which God would build the true temple in which his spirit would dwell. We already know this true temple is not a building, it's you and me, a people. It's a people who have seen that Jesus is the Son of God. It's a people who have seen that as the Son of God, Jesus' authority can mean one of two things. One is that Jesus' authority can mean he has the right to break you to pieces and crush you in judgment. Let that sink in for a second. As the Son of God, it means that He has the authority and right to break you and me to pieces and crush us in judgment. He alone has that right. That's one thing the authority of Jesus can mean for our lives. But second, Jesus' authority can mean that he alone and only him has the power to forgive us of our sins and give us new life through his death and resurrection. That's great news! And it's worthy of applause! we are all bound to have this stone break us to pieces and crush us. But if we would not reject Jesus, but accept him, embrace him, worship him as the beloved son of God, listen to this. He will forego his authority of being that stone that breaks and crushes the guilty. And he will graciously be the cornerstone that seeks and saves the lost and makes them a temple of living stones, the temple of the living God. Let's pray. Father in heaven. I ask that now that we've gone through your word, you would first have mercy and graciously take anything that I have said that's not true or of you and burn it from our hearts and minds. But what is of your word you would take and that at the reading and hearing of your word, the preaching of your word, it would ignite faith. Faith that believes that Jesus is the Son of God and that he died for our sins so that we could be forgiven but also rose from the dead so that we could become members with him of your temple. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.